Well, different denominations have different opinions and approaches to the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's one thing that separates different denominations. I remember going to a church that was a bit more Pentecostal in nature, and on their Connect cards, they had some of the usual things, name, um, I'd like to know more about Christianity. But there was also a box that made me a bit uncomfortable. And the box said, I'm a Christian, but I'd like to have the Holy Spirit. It seemed to be suggesting that you could be a Christian, someone who trusts and follows the Lord Jesus, and yet still not have the Holy Spirit to enable that trust and obedience. The Holy Spirit is vitally important for understanding Christian living. Um, I think we're only vaguely aware of the significance of the power and the benefit that we uh, enjoy by being Christians with the Holy Spirit's help. Um, Some denominations understate the Spirit's significance, and perhaps Presbyterian denomination could be put in that category. A friend of mine said recently in a different denomination that it seems his church's trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. The Holy Spirit barely acknowledged in church life. Perhaps to address the same problem, when I was a youth minister in an Anglican church, the minister said to me, I'd like you to mention, at least mention the Holy Spirit in every sermon that you preach, David. One, because the church up the road is talking only about the Holy Spirit, and at least we can sometimes mention him. But also, everything the Bible calls us to do is doable because of the Holy Spirit's help. We're never alone with what the Bible commands us to do. We have God's empowering and personal presence, and it's good for us to remember that. Last week, as we began in chapter 8, I mentioned that this whole chapter is intended to give Christians assurance. And some might be here thinking today, well, I just come to church in my own time. Uh, I just come to church Sunday by Sunday, but in my own time, well, I like to do things my own way. Am I a Christian? And some might think, well, I do trust and follow Jesus, but not very well. Perhaps not well enough, so am I a Christian? Others of us might think, well, I and my household have been here for years. I tick the Christian box on the the census. Surely that makes me a Christian, right? How do we know we're a Christian? What difference does the Holy Spirit make And how does the Holy Spirit help us to understand that vital question of whether we belong to God or not? Christians can be deeply assured we do belong to God. And if you're following in the outline, it's because of the Spirit's presence. We are certain because God renews our mind. He dwells in us and he adopts us as his children. So if you look firstly, God renews our minds by the Spirit. There are two types of human beings in the world. Those who have the Holy Spirit and those who don't. Team Adam have the mind of Adam. But Christians are those who, upon joining Team Jesus, putting their faith in Jesus, have been renewed, regenerated in our minds. Our minds are no insignificant part of us. John Calvin says the mind here includes all the faculties of the soul. Reason, understanding, and affections, all gathered and and influenced by the Spirit. That is, the Spirit's transformation goes very deep within us as humans and affects every day tremendously. Your life as a, a Christian is so different from what it would be without the Holy Spirit and if you were not a Christian. 
Let's pick up from verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Flesh is a word mentioned a number of times there. What is flesh? I think some Christian traditions have gone the wrong way in understanding flesh. Um, Thinking everything of the body is bad, for example. Spirit is good, body is bad. Um, The Bible made the body as well. Uh, God made the, the body as well. It's not bad. Or some think that spirituality isn't physical. And so as long as my soul belongs to God, it doesn't matter what my body does. And I don't have to change nappies. When changing nappies might be the most spiritual thing you can do in a certain situation. Some have said that sex, even within marriage, is of the flesh and therefore not only isn't necessary, but is a bad thing. And so therefore priests shouldn't be married. It's fleshly. Flesh, sometimes translated sinful nature in the NIV, is a term Paul uses a lot. Flesh can just mean meat, as it does in English, soft tissue, flesh on the bones. But Paul sometimes speaks of it also to mean all of humanity, all flesh. And so it's not in itself a negative word. God made flesh, but it is a limited word. And it's a contrasting word. That's the reason Paul's using it. So flesh for Paul here means the things that are merely of this world, this worldly. Things of the flesh die with our flesh. Um, As a minister, I've seen many dead bodies. The body, the flesh, is before the family. But they know that their loved one is no longer there. It's just the body. And yet all humans in Adam's race, by default, tend to think of this body, this, this world, as the primary world. Uh, we tend to live for what is, like the flesh, seen instead of what is unseen. We do it as two-year-olds. We do it as philosophy professors, whether we're atheist or materialist or humanist or rationalist. We regard life and humanity from a worldview that misses God, misses the very real spiritual realm that we observe with a a deceased friend. It's a worldview that has no idea about life and death and life after death. Seen this way, you can see why Paul says in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. You would expect it, wouldn't you? One-track minds. Always the worldly concerns, because that's all their mind considers. Always the world's interests, the world's thinking, the world's goals, world's hopes. That's how our world works. Without intervention, we are incurably bent toward our own good, our own career advancement, the success of our own business, pleasing our boss for our own sake. We make lifestyle choices and, of course, choose a course if it's a better situation for ourselves in the flesh while our true king is, seems to be away on some journey. As St. Augustine taught, the wisdom of the flesh seeks after earthly gifts and fears temporal evils. He's making a similar point to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he calls people faithless, you of little faith. Worrying, fretting, chasing after earthly things as though God has left the room. But verse 5, the contrast for an inspirited Christian 
is stark and wonderful. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The Spirit of God has opened our eyes and hearts to God the Father and God the Son, the King and the Kingdom. So gospel and prayer, blessing, glory, big things of eternity start to occupy our minds. What was sprinkled among a few in ancient Israel, as you read in the Old Testament, you can see the Spirit's influence in the psalmists and other places. The Spirit is there. But now as we come to the New Testament and after Pentecost, what was sprinkled in the Old Testament is now poured out among, upon all true Christians and all true churches. Verse 6. Again, I think we take this for granted as churches, but it's such a blessing. Verse 6 continues, The mind governed by the flesh is death. Death in a broad sense, I take it. Deathly thinking. It leads to a deathly existence, no spiritual life in it. And thirdly, death involves wrath and condemnation now, but then worse beyond the grave, death after death. But, verse 6, in stark contrast, because we've been justified, because there's no, now no condemnation, the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. So death is not a future prospect for those outside of Christ. It's the status quo, living in a deathly experience. Until we come to Christ, Paul says we are dead in sins and the death experience will go from bad to much worse. And so too life and peace are not only future prospects for the Christian, but are what the Spirit brings to the Christians through and in the world. Uh, Christians in our thought world, as we live in the world. Verse 7 and 8 says, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. You need to be careful expecting people to live spiritual lives if they don't have the spirit. Sometimes I see Christian schools might have Christian ethics without the gospel that produces the ethics. Or parenting too, we have to be careful looking after other people's kids, expecting a spiritual level that they aren't equipped to have. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. I remember on a visit to Indonesia sitting with a Muslim friend. I stayed in a Muslim's house for a month. And he had the Quran on his lap and I had the Bible on my lap. He was trying to be good, but I noticed it wasn't working very well when he hung out with his university friends and they got up to mischief together. In conversation with him, he was saying that he was hoping at the end of his life his good deeds will outweigh his bad deeds. But he had no confidence that they did. His situation without Jesus and the Spirit of God was, according to God's word here, absolutely hopeless. Shows, doesn't it, how you can't work your way into heaven. You can't work your way out of death to spiritual life. Who will rescue this friend from his body of death? Those who are in the realm of the flesh, the everyday Aussie occupied with this world's interests only, have no hope at all of pleasing God, understandably. They're not even interested. They're not even trying. The hostility, verse 7, the enmity, the disregard for God... The ongoing disinterest in praise or thankfulness to God is, chapter 1, inexcusable. And it means these friends are experiencing God's present judgment and should seek escape from his coming wrath. 
Remember chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed. It's the current reality. So friends, Paul and God, within Paul's words, want you to recognize the dramatic, wonderful change that takes place for us as Christians in our minds. Your reason, your understanding, your affections. You read the words of these songs and they mean something to you because your mind has been changed, reprogrammed to see the value of them. Jesus warns in the book of Revelation about living a conflicted Christian life where we perhaps go through Christian rituals with a, a Christian mask to cover an unregenerate heart. Lukewarm Christianity that he wants to spew from his mouth. Little space or excitement about word or prayer or gatherings. A little convenient compartment for God in our lives, for the kingdom, but a will and a mind that ultimately does not submit, verse 7, to Jesus' call for us to be his disciples. We just don't want to go there enough. But the Holy Spirit moves us from playing with God to instead, verse 6, being governed, ruled, by the Spirit. We know we are Christians. We know we belong to God because the, fir- the, uh, the Spirit is first renewing our minds. And secondly, verses 9 to 11, because the Spirit dwells in us. Another reason for us to have an assurance. Our minds, how we think changes because of a greater change that's taking place that Paul now speaks of. We have a new Spirit within us that explains our new way of thinking. Verse 9, you, however, are not literally in the flesh, but are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. We are in the Spirit. The Spirit is in us, verse 9. There is a mysterious, rich cohabitation of God himself with a Christian. And verse 9, only with a Christian. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. That's why the church tick box was so unhelpful. If I'm a Christian, then I belong to Christ, then I have the Holy Spirit. That can just be confusing and create two grades of Christians, those without the Spirit and those with the Spirit, and make those feel very flat who perhaps don't speak in tongues or or have signs that people think you should have. Without the Spirit, I could not and would not be Christ's. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. And notice too in verses 10 to 11 how God, Father, Son, and Spirit are spoken of almost interchangeably. In verse 9, the Spirit is called the Spirit of God and then the Spirit of Christ. And then in verse 10, it goes further saying, but if Christ is in you. So we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, verse 9, Which is to say, verse 10, we have Christ himself in us. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, mediates to us the risen life of Christ to our spirit. The Holy Spirit communicates Christ to the spirit, the soul, the heart of who we are. Our bodies are subject to death, doomed because of sin. But God's eternal, infinite, immortal, even personal presence has entered our lives. And so we have eternity in our lives. Now, what does that look like to have a spirit living in us besides our own spirit? We see in the Gospels, don't we, what 
it can look like to have spirits in people. We see people possessed by demons, spirits joining a human spirit to bring destruction into their lives, affecting their minds, affecting their decisions. But here we see not an angel spirit, but the spirit of Christ. Christ himself making a home with every Christian. When you compare it to the the demon-possessed, it's quite a dramatic transformation, isn't it? Quite an alternative. If a demon is powerful to make a destructive difference, what a liberating, profound difference we can expect God, the Holy Spirit, to make within us, Christ's Spirit. One wonderful difference in verse 11 that comes out of having Christ's Spirit. And friends, I just find this so encouraging. The more I'm aware of the Spirit's presence, the more I feel encouraged as a Christian that I'm not alone and I'm more aware of what's going on in my life, my thinking. Verse 11, bonus. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. That is, the Spirit of God who now lives in us is hardly going to abandon us when it's time for our bodies to give way and for us to go to be with God, the place he's prepared for us. If you know you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, then you know that you will be raised to life with God. The one Spirit does both jobs, changes us from within, and gives life to the mortal bodies of his own. It's wonderfully assuring, isn't it? If you call out to God as your God, you can know that he'll take you to be with him. Well, it's Mother's Day today, and in the last 12 months, two godly women from my childhood church have left their mortal bodies, buried to decay in the ground or burned at high temperature into ashes. Those who know them know the Spirit's work in them and through them. They've seen it. Those who know them have no doubt that their lives are now in God's good hands, more obviously now than ever. Their old foes, Satan, sin and the flesh, faithfully fought for 70 years, 90 years with the Spirit's help, have finally been dealt with because of Christ's Spirit. They were Christ's at work. They were Christ's in their home. They were Christ's in the Christian community and influenced people like me and many others in the church. They had Christ's Spirit as mothers and aunts and sisters, disciples of Jesus. And I love the thought of following them and their Lord in my own life. It may be tomorrow, it may be a few decades away, but as a dying patient said to his pastor, you know, I'm actually a bit excited about dying. He knew whose he was, he knew where he was going. With this wonderful future comes a natural and right obligation, verse 12. But the obligation, of course, is not to the flesh that's passing away to live according to it, verse 12. For if you, verse 13, live according to the flesh, you will surely die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This is not saying, right, now Christians have to get to work and earn their salvation. It's saying Christians, it's not saying either that Christians can lose their salvation. We can't become unadopted. The the no condemnation won't be revoked. But it is a helpful test for ourselves. 
Do you have the marks of a Christian as the Bible describes it? 80, 100 years ago when Australia was more culturally Christian than post-Christian, this verse, I take it, would have really challenged a huge proportion of church attenders. Sometimes seen by Christians as Australia's or the church's golden years, when half the town went to church, when Sunday schools were full and overflowing. In some ways, they were good days, but it should also be recognised that many who went to church as a ritual bodily sadly never had the light of the Spirit within them. As Keith Green said to a church-going America, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. The marks of the Spirit's works are therefore really valuable as a litmus test. Do you have a mind for the Spirit's interests, God, the kingdom, the gospel, following the Lord Jesus, loving Jesus by loving the church family around you? Are you killing, putting to death that strong phrase, verse 13, the mastery of the flesh, temporal affairs for the affairs of God? They're the marks of the Spirit. Not to condemn, but to affirm Christians. What is a good litmus test for all is ultimately written as an assurance letter for us. I know I'm God's because he renews my mind. Secondly, he dwells in, within me. And thirdly, here in verses 12 to 17, he adopts us as his children. The last point is perhaps the most exhilarating of all. We saw last week there's now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. That was good, but this is much better. Uh, This builds on the foundation of no condemnation. Being in Christ is good. But even better than being in Christ, adoption relies on us being in Christ and says even more, goes further. Verse 14, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God, literally sons of God, Paul writes, because in Jewish culture, sons had the full inheritance rights. Those led by the Spirit are the sons of God. This is an extraordinary reality and one we can be more conscious of to our edification and our encouragement day by day. We don't become God, but with Christ's spirit, we're more like God than we were. Christ's image is increasingly seen in us. Look with me at verses 15 to 17. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now we're used to that, calling God Father. But don't you think it's odd, incredible and and wonderful all at once? That because the Spirit now lives in us, Christians think of the immortal, invisible, eternal, unchanging, transcendent, awesome and holy God, the universe's creator, sustainer, judge, saviour. We think of this unspeakably great being as our dear father, Abba, father. We think of this great God very much like the son of God would, like our spirit brother Jesus did. Our father we think of with intimacy, affection, gratitude, awe, love, worship. We boldly approach the eternal throne and Presumptuously? No. The spirit of Jesus in us directs us that way, our minds, and he warms our hearts 
to rightly and trustingly call this great God Father, our Father. This doesn't have to be drilled into us as Christians. We don't need a a six-week course teaching us that you must call God your Father. Rather, we sense it when the Spirit enters enters our lives, verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Isn't that amazing? Whenever you call God our Father, it's a sign you have the Holy Spirit. Luther writes about this verse, this about Abba Father, this is the cry of a heart which is full of childlike trust and knows no fear. The cry is not one of the mouth, but of the heart. Abba, Father. The Spirit influences our mind, but the Spirit's also influencing our heart. If by the Spirit you know God as Father, then you know you're his child. And that means, further verse 17, now if we are children, then we are also heirs. It just keeps getting better. We had some rough chapters, didn't we? Chapters 2, 1, 2, 3 in Romans. Now it's just good upon good upon good. Worldly people love the idea of a juicy inheritance. Some people, I think, think about the inheritance for decades before it comes. They might even split up with their family to get a bigger chunk of it. But earthly inheritances are just crumbs compared to what we receive sitting as children at the royal table. We are, verse 17, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We can only begin to imagine what that means, what it will mean. And he writes there, if or since indeed we share in his sufferings. Naturally, as spirit-filled disciples, we're not just going to get to church occasionally to tick the Christian box. That's perhaps the old Australian church-going model. Rather, we, this spirit-filled church, will endure costs by choosing God's will over self-will. Verse 17, in order that we may also share in his glory. What is his glory? We get a few glimpses of it in the gospel and in Acts, just as we did with the spirit dwelling in us. At the transfiguration, you remember Jesus had a radiance, a glory that knocked Peter, James and John to the ground. Moses and Elijah as well looked radiant post-death, more alive than ever. And later, the glory of Jesus threw Paul, the author of this letter to the Romans, to the ground as well, leaving him blind and speechless, humbled and transformed. Paul had a sense of Jesus' glory, and he knows we'll enter into it and share in it. We are heirs with God. We're co-heirs with Jesus. Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, John, Paul... We who share their interests, their sacrificial choices, their sufferings, their readiness to be inconvenienced on a weeknight, a weekend, to take hits for the Lord Jesus when we need to. Because we have Christ's spirit, that's who we are. We are those, therefore, who will also share in his glory.